0: Well, good morning. As Matt said, my name is Aaron Boswell. I'm excited to be here with you this morning, opening up God's word together. So if you're a first-time guest here with us, uh, welcome. I am also first-time, so (laughs) glad that you're here. Glad I'm here. Uh, I'd like to join Matt in welcoming you. And if you've been around here for a while, if maybe you're from one of the ministries that helped plant this, where where you said, hey, I I will be some of those crazy people that will leave and go help plant something new— Blessings on you. I'm thankful that you are, are here. Uh, we, as a ministry, I was talking with Norm Funk earlier today, and he said, "Hey, give those people uh, all of our blessings." And I was like, I, "Yeah, man, I'm planning on it." Because, because you guys are a, are a church that we deeply and passionately love. We we pray for you. We have been praying for you from before this was even public that anyone knew about it. Have uh, been, been praying for you weekly as a as a church, as a ministry, and so we are just praising God for everything that we've seen in the midst of this ministry. Uh, that you can have an. AGM tonight and rejoice and think through what God has done and what he is going to do is a beautiful and precious time as a church ministry. It's not a, a boring business meeting. It's, it's a celebration of what God has done and looking forward to and dreaming of what could God continue to see us do as a ministry. And so uh, I wish I could be with you tonight. I can't be, but is it going to be recorded? Oh, good, good. Praise God. So it's great to be here with you, uh, opening up God's word together. And today we're continuing a series that you've been in for the last year, the last year, uh, as you've been walking through the gospel of Luke, uh, a book that was written so that we may have confidence concerning the things that we have heard to be true about Jesus, which is great for some of you, because if you're brand new to Christianity, you're walking, you're exploring, kicking the tires on what what we believe and and trust about Jesus. Uh, It's good for you to walk through a book like the gospel of Luke because it helps you know uh, the things you've heard about Jesus, are they true? What is true about, about Jesus? And for those of you who, who are Christians, you, you believe that Jesus is your God, Savior, and King. It's good for us to come back over and over and over and over again because we have forgetful hearts. And so specifically this morning, we're, we're going to be spending some time thinking about what does it mean to follow Jesus in such a way that would lead to Jesus marveling at our faith in him. What does it mean to follow Jesus in such a way that leads us or sorry, that leads Jesus to marvel at our faith in him. And we do so not because that's a, that's a fun little like construct, like, Hey, how can we make that happen? But because the text that we're in today blatantly literally says that Jesus marveled at somebody's faith. And I started thinking about that. and I was wondering, is such a faith even possible. And if so, is it possible for people like us today? I mean, we can read stories in the Bible that are devoted to the faithfulness of God's people throughout the ages. We can read Christian biography stories of, throughout history of, of God's people that we're sure that if anyone could have lived a life that made Jesus wonder or admire the way that they leveraged all of their lives for his kingdom and not their own, then surely it was these people Right. Like people like Adniram Judson or Hudson Taylor, Lottie Moon, um, uh, Annie Armstrong, George Mueller. The list could go on and on and on, not to mention a a host of Christian martyrs, people that have given their lives and died just for the simple fact that they believe that Jesus is God. And stories like that, they, they have a way of fueling our desire for faithfulness as God's people, don't they? I mean, just, we hear stories of, of the way that people have leveraged everything, sold condos and moved, joined with and planted a new ministry. The way that they've just sold everything, hopped on a boat and left for another country, knowing they'd never, ever come back. And we're like, man, I want me some of that. Right? Like we read that and we're like, yes. How is that what marks my life? And stories like that fuel that desire and faithfulness for a few hours or days or even a season of our lives. But then what happens? The pressures and stresses of life, they come in and they kind of choke out that passion, right? We get settled back into the same old patterns that we had beforehand. And if we're honest, we we begin to believe the lie that people like us can't have that same kind or caliber of faith. Faith that would make Jesus marvel at our trust in him. And so we read about Jesus marveling on someone's faith and we think, well, that's not for us. And we find ourselves back to where we started, apathetic, busy, w- wondering that, that if we could hear God's thoughts about us, about our faith, we'd be sure he's probably shrugging his shoulders and saying something like, well, I don't know, honestly, I, I wish they were a bit deeper. But does it have to be that way? Or can our everyday ordinary lives really be lived in such a way that leads to God himself? marveling at our faith in him. And understandably, those might not be the kind of questions you ask yourself, right? Like you're walking through your week. That's probably not what you're, what you're asking. You haven't spent a lot of time thinking and processing through, but, but thoughts like this really shape how we view ourselves, how we view God, and how we view our relationship with God, right? How we feel about how God feels about us shapes everything. And, and even if you walked in this morning, still kicking the tires on Christianity, learning about Jesus and some of the claims that he makes on our lives. I, I think these are the kind of things that you wonder about as well. Right? Is there a God? And if so, how does he feel about me? And the beautiful thing about where we're going to be looking at today in the Bible is that the guy that demonstrates the kind of faith that makes Jesus marvel is a guy who is not raised in a Christian church. He grew up worshiping idols in a temple. He worshiped spirits of various sorts. But when he heard about Jesus, just like you, he came to have this kind of a faith. And today this faith can be yours. So stick with us. And and if you are a Christian, the question of if God is is pleased with the abundance of your faith might seem like a strange one at, at first blush. Right? I mean, because of your faith in, in Jesus, in his perfect uh, life of faithful obedience, and his death in your place, you know beyond a shadow of a doubt what God's thoughts are about you. Because you know that he's looking at you through the finished work of Jesus alone. So, so now God's thoughts about you are always wonderful. I don't know if you thought about that recently. His thoughts about you are always wonderful. Not because he's happy with you. Not because he's happy with the caliber of your faith, but because he is happy with God, the son. And, and you are clothed in his righteousness, his caliber of faith, his gloriousness is now is now considered ours by faith. And that's true. But but throughout your everyday life, do you ever look at the sins or the patterns of your life and think there's got to be something more? Do you wonder if he looks at your faith and he marvels at the abundance of it? Does God look at you and smile with joy? Or do you feel like he's sometimes maybe, maybe putting up with you? And, and quite frankly, quite frankly he's, he's looking forward to the day when maybe you've grown up a bit in your relationship with him. That day when you've got less visible sins in your life, you have a better prayer life, you, you are on a ministry team. He's like, finally, I've been waiting. Right, Your cussing has gotten a little bit, more in more infrequent your social media intake is a little less worldly your netflix or dvr recent views is a bit less full of game of thrones reruns right like when that day is in the future then he's going to be a little bit more happy with me so yes brother and sister you're covered in the righteousness of jesus and god is ultimately pleased with you because of jesus alone but if we're honest do you do you struggle like i do To know if God is really pleased with with the measure of faith that you have. And I was thinking about our mutual wrestlings on this topic. And and I really wonder if we ever arrive. If we ever get to the place where we're confident that God is happy with our faith and trust in him. Right? Like as, as we're following him and walking through trials and tests of various sorts. Is there anything in our trust in our faith of him that leaves God marveling at our faith in him? Or is that the kind of faith that's just kind of out of reach for people like us? People in the Bible, martyrs, people that, that would sell everything and move to Winnipeg. Yeah, maybe them. But us? And so I want to examine this story today and see what we can learn and how we might follow the example of the person in our text to see how we might begin to live our lives leveraging them in ways that leave Jesus marveling. So that's where we're going. All right? Thank you. Uh, Beautiful. So if you have a Bible uh, or a Bible app on your phone, go ahead and grab those. We're going to be in uh, the gospel of Luke. Luke is in the New Testament. If you need to use your concordance at the beginning, use it. Uh, We're going to be in the book of Luke uh, chapter 7 or big number 7 and small numbers or verses 1 to 10. And so I'd love that text to be in front of you so that you can make little notes and circle things with me as we walk through and see for yourselves how we can follow this example of faith. So let's read together Luke chapter 7, verses 1 to 10. It says, after he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he He sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and to heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word, And let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go. And he goes. To another, come. And he comes. And my servant, do this. And he does it. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well so let's pray and then uh, and then we will dive back into that so father we're thankful for your word we come to your word this morning knowing that you want to meet with us in it and show us how we can have true faith faith that stands as we learned about last week in a faith that pleases you a faith that gives us assurance of things hoped for so that as we walk through the ups and downs of this life we can trust you in more we can trust you more than what our eyes can see as we come now to worship you through studying your word we pray that you would give us eyes to see minds to comprehend hearts that can feel and ears that can hear so that we might we might not grow more dull as a result of our time together this morning but we might grow in worship and affection and joy God, we are so dependent upon your Spirit's work in our lives to accomplish this. And so, Father, Father, please send God the Spirit to make much of Jesus. Oh, God, we need you to come and work in our midst. And we pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen. One of the things I'd love for us to do this morning is to go back through the text kind of slowly and explaining a thing, a few things, making sure we saw a few things together. And then we're going to dive into exploring the faith of the centurion and then how we can follow his examples that will lead us to see how we can lead lives to glorify God because of our God-given faithfulness. That's where we're going. So so we're gonna go back to the beginning of reading through the text. We're gonna make a few notes together in our Bibles or our phones, uh, and and kinda of pause as we as we go through. All right. Great. Great. Thankful you are with me, brother. So, one of the first questions that I, I had on these um, on these questions uh, reverse to back to verse 1. So, verse 1, look with me. After he had finished all the sayings and the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Verse 2, Now a centurion and a servant who is sick and at the point of death, who is highly valued by him. And when the centurion, verse 3, heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. So, so one of the first questions I had on this is, is how in the world did this Roman centurion here come to hear, or to know about anything about Jesus? How? That's, that's, a, what, that's what starts this whole train, right? He heard about him, boom, 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 boom. How did he, how did he hear about him? And, and if you remember from uh, at this point, probably a few months ago, um, this isn't the first time that Jesus has been in Capernaum. In fact, Luke chapter 4 verses 31 to 44 recounts to us all of the mighty miracles that Jesus did in Capernaum. Like he cast out demons and he healed people from various diseases. So I went and looked back at at Luke chapter 4 verses 31 to 44. And and I thought through, what did the centurion know about Jesus? And I came up with three things. You're smarter than me. You can probably come up with ten. But I came up with three. Uh, Number one is that he had authority. He had authority over sickness, he could rebuke it, but even authority over demons, they fled at his word. Secondly, that Jesus could heal sickness, which is incredible. So, so when the centurion has a sick servant who is highly valued by him, he hears about Jesus and he knows that Jesus can heal sickness and that he has authority. and so he thinks, maybe maybe he could heal my servant. As well. And thirdly, no disease is stronger than Jesus. All who had any who were sick came to him, and they were all healed of various diseases, is what the text says. Not one disease came to Jesus, and he's like, Sorry, bro. Can't help you, man. Not one, every single disease healed at the at the word of, of Jesus. And so knowing these things about Jesus and having a sick servant, what did the centurion do? Well, he petitioned Jesus to come and to heal his servant. And he sent elders of the Jews as a way of honoring Jesus. I don't know if you thought about that. When these elders show up, though, what did they say? Verse 4, he came, when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly. Honoring Jesus, which, which seems like an odd thing. If you've been around the Bible a while, that there would be elders of the Jews that would be coming to Jesus to ask him to heal The servant of a Gentile centurion is an odd thing. That's weird. Secondly, uh, during this time, right? Rome is the invader. They are ruling with an iron fist over large swaths of Europe, North Africa, the Middle East, and Israel is one of those nations that are under their rule, and they're not happy about it. They want a new king to come that will, that will destroy the Romans, give them liberty as a, as a nation, and rule with an iron scepter so that they can be their own people, underneath their own king. And yet, here we see these elders of the Jews are errand boys of a Roman centurion. Why? And here's where we get to know something beautiful about this particular centurion. Listen to what they say about him. He is worthy to have you do this for him. Why? Why is he worthy? And they give us two reasons one, he loves our nation. And secondly, he is the one who built us our synagogue. Now, this Roman centurion was not just a foreigner foreign invader leveraging political power to gain favors favors. No, he he loved the love their nation, had love for their nation, and he demonstrated this at great cost to himself. He built their synagogue, probably the very same synagogue that Jesus had preached in, in Luke chapter four. That's wild. And so this man who was not raised around the God of Israel had a soft spot for the nation. And he provided for them out of his own pocket. He built their church. It's no wonder that the elders of the Jews came to Jesus on behalf of this man and said that he's worthy. He's worthy to have you do this for him. I mean, Jesus had probably already heard of him already, having already been in Capernaum and been in that synagogue. And if anyone is worthy to have a servant healed, surely it would be this dude. Right? And how does Jesus respond to this? By saying none is worthy. No. He just goes with them. Jesus says nothing. He just, okay, just goes. Happy to have this as one of the works that the father had prepared for him to walk in. In verse 6, when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends. There's the second envoy of people. And yet notice they come with a radically different message than the message from the elders. Right? The elders come. He's worthy to have you do this for him. He's a worthy, worthy man. But how does the centurion view himself? He sends this message. Lord, do not trouble yourself. For I am not worthy. Homeboy uses the same word. I am not worthy. He's worthy. I'm not worthy. To have you come under my roof. Therefore, because I am not worthy, I did not even presume to come to you. And I don't know if you noticed that, but the structure of these these sentences are built around. They're pointing to, they're highlighting the unworthiness of the centurion. He doesn't even feel like Jesus could come into his own house. Think of that. While many people would have considered this to be a great honor to have Jesus come to their house, the centurion, he demonstrating his amazing character, realizes he is not worthy. ...of having Jesus come to his house. He, the Roman centurion, counts Jesus of more worth and honor than himself. If you think about that, Jesus is relatively poor. The centurion is relatively rich. Jesus is a traveling preacher. He's kind of not thought well of by by a lot of people, especially not Gentiles. And, And the centurion is thought well of by everyone. Even these elders of the Jews... Yet the centurion knows with whom he is speaking. Jesus is not some poor traveling preacher. So the centurion sent friends to explain his unworthiness and to acknowledge Jesus' authority. And then he adds this. He says, don't come, but say the word and let my servant be healed. Get that. He asked Jesus simply say the word and let my servant be healed. And this entry grounds his entire argument of why he believes that Jesus can simply say the word from a great distance and heal his servant whom he's never laid eyes on. This is this is how he reasons why I'm asking this. It's all grounded in what? He says, for I, too, am a man set under authority with soldiers underneath me. I say to one, go, and he goes. Another, come, and he comes. To my servant, do this, and he does it. And the centurion grounds his entire ask of Jesus upon this understanding. He says, Jesus, like you, I am a man under authority, and I have people underneath me that look to me. I have authority over, over them. I know what it is like to tell people to do things, and they do them because I have authority, and you are like me. But there's a massive difference. You outrank me. Oh, do you see that? See, he can tell soldiers and servants what to do, but he can't tell sickness what to do. The power to do that does not lie within him, but the power to make sickness depart from kilometers away simply by speaking the word. Jesus has that power and he knows it. Which brings us to the verse that we started with. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. It's interesting, that concept of Jesus marveling. Did you know that only happens twice in all of the New Testament? Once Jesus is marveling at the profound lack of someone's faith. And here he is marveling at the abundance of somebody's faith. And it's not even somebody from the household of Israel. See, this this is an encouragement, I think, to our new friend, the centurion. But I think simultaneously, this is a rebuke and an invitation to the Jews. A, A rebuke because Jesus is pointing out even this Roman centurion can see who Jesus is and believe that he has the power to do things like this. A theme that Luke, the writer of this book, will continue throughout this book and into the book of Acts. I don't know if you're going there next. That's a good one next. Um, Which he also wrote, right? So it's a rebuke to the Jewish people who should see and yet don't. But it's also an invitation. It's an invitation to come and to believe like this man. Jesus lifts up this foreign man who has no right to the promises of Abraham and says, Be like him. Luke is constantly doing that, that reversal over and over again. And what was the result? Well, Jesus marveled at his faith. And verse 10 tells us that when the friends who had been sent returned, they found the servant well. So Jesus did heal the servant. Jesus responds to faith like that. He marvels at it and responds to it. And and I don't know about you, for me, I I read this and I see it as a stinging rebuke and a gracious invitation from me one that God has been working on my heart this past week because I've been studying this text. I mean, I want to have faith like this, right? The kind of faith that leads God to marvel and rejoice over me as his son because I take him at his word and step by step throughout my life, I trust in his goodness and sufficiency and promises more than what my eyes can see. And so what is the gracious invitation for us? How are we called to follow the centurion's faith? And I, and I think there are probably more. I, I wrote down three. One, when we walk through tests, trials and storms of various sorts, petition Jesus and ask him to come and to heal. Secondly, come before Jesus humbly, recognizing he has the authority to do this. And third, have faith that he can speak a word in the situation and be healed. See, and this is what God demands of all of us as we come and study this text. We are to follow this faith, the faith of the centurion. It's a, it's a, it's a rebuke and an invitation. We don't have faith like this. Oh, but come that you might. This is to be how we are to always respond to the tests and the trials of our lives. Every phone call that comes in, every diagnosis that comes down the line, this over and over and over again, the things that we walk through like waves on a shore, this is how we are supposed to respond. So this text is a stunning rebuke, but a gracious invitation. We're invited to model the faith of the centurion. And as we do, God is glorified. Indeed. So so see the faith of the centurion. Follow this pattern. This is what we should do. The example of this man. Go and follow it. Can I say that? That's one way of looking at this text. I don't think it's the most helpful, but it's kind of condemning personally. But but that's one way: thinking that we have an example to follow, and that we need to try our hardest because that is what God expects, right? So see the example and try really really hard, and maybe just maybe God will be pleased with you. Good luck. Friends, we need not be around the Bible very long to see that we are never the hero of any text. In fact, over and over and over again, we come to the Bible and we see that we are never the hero. Nor does God expect us to be the hero. In fact, as we reflect on this story further, we would come to see that we're nothing like the centurion, right? We, We fail all the time. If this is what God demands of us, we don't measure up, and that's the problem. I fail at this. We fail at this. And so I, I thought through the years as I've lived on this earth that there are some things I've noticed about myself. Firstly, when I walk through difficult life situations, I forget to bring the situation to Jesus and ask his help. I try to solve it on my own. When I do come before Jesus, I don't come humbly. I come like the religious leaders, not like the centurion's friends. I come like the religious leaders. I plead my own worthiness. Jesus, I've done this. You need to come through. Or I plead the worthiness of others. Don't you know who they are? How they have sacrificed? And thirdly, I struggle to have faith that Jesus really can move and heal. Like many of you, I can quote the right doctrines and beliefs. Sure. Sure. But when push comes to shove, I simply don't have the ability to do what God is calling me to do in this text. Definitely not in my own strength. And most times by his spirit's grace, it's a struggle. And I think that's because this entire sermon so far and the way that we naturally read through the text, we we read it like this. We read it, we study it, and then we wonder what we can learn about how to have faith like the centurion because we naturally assume that we're the hero. The one who has everything together, the one that Jesus is going to marvel at. And, and it might not be wrong to do some of these things secondarily. I mean, there are things that Jesus is graciously inviting us into, right? There's, there's rebuke and gracious invitation. Yes, 100%. There, there is that here. But, but primarily, I would suggest that there is a character that we should identify with before the centurion. See, before we're ever this centurion, we must see that according to the Bible, we have much more in common with the centurion's servant. Here's what I mean. What do we know about the servant? Well, all that we're really told about him is that he's sick and he's at the point of death. He's hopeless. And without miraculous intervention, he would surely die unless Jesus came and made him well. Jesus is his only hope. Likewise, the Bible paints us with a similar brushstroke when we stand before God. It's not a pleasant diagnosis of our true selves, but it's a right one. We're told multiple times in multiple ways throughout the Bible that you and I are desperately sick, that we are desperately sick stick with sin, with natural rebellion against God, and that all we have earned from God for our rebellion, the only wage that we have earned is physical and spiritual death. Where we would spend eternity facing the right justice and judgment of God against our sin, for our rebellion against him. But at just the right time, Jesus God, the son laid humanity alongside of his divinity and stepped into time to come after us. To come after us, according to the plans that he made with the father and the spirit from before the foundations of the world were set to demonstrate his great love for us by taking on the form of a what? Servant on the form of a servant and dying the death that we deserve to die. See he truly took our place, bore our griefs, and paid our debts so that so that we who are sick with sin and at the point of death could be made well. Friends, this is my story. And if you are a Christian, this is your story. It, it, it's, it's the one that we need to be reminded of often. Because when we come to God's word, that's not naturally what we come and see. We come seeing a list of rules to accomplish, not a God to be worshipped. And not only that, but we know from God's word that, that when we believed upon Jesus, guess what? We were given God the Spirit to indwell us and to empower us to do that which we could not do before. So in reading today's scripture, we saw a list of things that the centurion did. And and we mentioned in our own strength and power, we're unable to do those. But for those of you who have put your faith and trust in Jesus and have been sealed by God the Spirit, guess what he does? He empowers you to do that which you could not previously do So, to answer our first question, how do we have faith that Jesus marvels at? Is that faith unreachable for us? No. It is only by grace and through the Spirit's empowerment that such faith is possible, but it is possible. So that God gets the glory and not us. So so let's look at these three things again and see how God the Spirit enables us to do that which we could not do beforehand. So number one, by grace, God the Spirit reminds us as we walk through trials of various sorts to bring the situation to Jesus. Because we know that we can trust his authority, his graciousness, and his provision. Secondly, we can come humbly before God, recognizing that that we only come because we have first been rescued and redeemed by Jesus. And we come covered in his righteousness, petitioning the father as his sons and daughters. We don't come demanding. We come asking boldly, trusting our God and our father with open hands, knowing his ways are always better than ours. And thirdly, when we struggle to have faith, what does the spirit do? He reminds us of the gospel and calls us to trust in what our eyes cannot see. And he gives us assurance of things hoped for. And that's the beauty of this, this is How do we have faith that God marvels at? God produces that faith in our lives for his good pleasure. So where are we at in this story? you're here and you're just exploring Jesus, uh, we're, we're thankful that you're here. We want you to, this is a great space for you to just keep on exploring Jesus, learn more about who he is, but there's going to come a day where you're going you're to come to a point where, where you're either going to believe or reject this point, point. and it's that, it's the reality that you are a servant who is sick with sin and at the point of death and ex- only can expect to face the just judgment of a holy God. That, that's the entranceway into the Christian life is, a, is you come to believe by faith that these things are true of you and that you need Jesus to be the servant who comes and is faithful in your place and dies in your place and rises from the dead and that he gives you his innocence and righteousness in your in your place. And so have you come to the, believe that? That you're sick like the servant, deserving nothing but death and judgment. If so, there is hope for you. Jesus, God himself, has come and is offering healing and forgiveness. You don't have to leave here sick and at the point of death. You can leave here made well. And to my brothers and sisters, are, are you prone to forgetting the gospel as you go throughout your daily life? Are you prone to reading the Bible like a list of rules that needs to be measured up to and forgetting that there is not some future version of you out there that God is more happy with? Because there's not. He is perfectly pleased with you because of Jesus. And so see this story as a, as a rebuke, a gracious one, but also as an invitation to trust in what your eyes cannot see and to worship the God who gave you faith and the God who marvels at the faith that he has given you. So that so that we may have faith to trust in what our eyes cannot see. Let's pray together. So Father, we're thankful for your word and how you transform and change us. That we can go from those who do not believe to those who who believe that we are sick with sin and deserving judgment. And, and yet you took our place. You took our sin. You took our sickness. You... You lived a perfect life in our place and died a death that we deserve to die so that we who are sick can be made well. We believe you have the authority and the power to make us well. And so I I pray, God, that you would move today in powerful ways. And for my brothers and sisters, I pray that you would strengthen them by your word and through your grace. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.